Hi, I'm Sean Horn, founder and CEO of BeBell.ie. So what is BeBell? Well, it's a place of positivity. It's a place where you can be happy, be kind, be bold, feel supported and encouraged to fulfill your dreams. So join us on social at BeBell.ie for future events and upcoming podcasts. Hello and welcome to Be Bell Podcast with myself, Sean Horn. Today, I have the honor of speaking to somebody that I've watched for some time since her Snapchat days. Um, and the last year, I've watched her make some real decisions and some really difficult ones, and they've made me proud to watch. And I've learned a lot from her. But um, most importantly, I understand her a little better now as a person um, and it's always a delight to catch up with her. So I hope you enjoy. So today I'm delighted to introduce the fabulous Nessa. Now, I did ask you, Nessa, how you would like me to introduce you. And you replied exactly how I would, actually. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> however you want to. Um, you know, I've been called worse and all those expressions. But I love that about you. And, um, and I'm delighted to have you on today. How are you? I am very well. Thank you for having me on. This is very exciting. This is my third podcast, I think. So it's very exciting. Fantastic. Um, well, you know how I like to talk. So today is, is for me to take a jaw break. break well, you know how I like to talk, so that won't be a problem. <laughs> well, that's okay because we've got plenty of time. I've nothing booked this afternoon, so we're all good. Um, but as you know, Bebel podcast is all about the person behind the business. So where did it all start for you, Nessa? Where were you born? Where was I born? I was born in Dublin. I'm a dub through and through, but I do have um, Kerry parents, so I'm not a true dub. Uh, I think if I think if you're a dub to to culty parents, you're, you're never really a true dub. But um, yeah, no, I, I'm Dublin, Dublin born and bred. And as a kid, then would you have spent a lot of time up and down, back and forth to Kerry? Yeah, we would have. Yeah, definitely. We'd um, we'd relatives in Kerry. So, yeah, we would have been on the road all the time. Yeah. That old bad road that took hours and hours and hours. Are you there yet? That kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing, actually, when you think back. I mean, I think Kerry was a god. I remember going to Khmer even 50 oh, years ago and it was like five yeah. hours. Yeah, it was madness. Well, actually, the first time I went, I, I turned the wrong turn in and I did the Ring of Kerry and it took me nine hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could easily do that <laughs> but uh but so growing up in Dublin then uh, where did you grow up in Dublin and did you have any siblings like what was your childhood like I was born we lived in Glasnevin um, I am the youngest of four children so I have two sisters and one brother um and I was the youngest by eight years so I was a surprise yeah. I was a surprise. So in really, I mean, I, I'm very, very close to my siblings and always was, but really I kind of feel I was almost like an only child with a lot of adults in my life rather than part of a child, you know, yeah. part of a sibling network. Like I, I was the baby and they adored me and my siblings adored me and my parents adored me. So I was very much uh, <laughs> kind of like an only child I think but I had the support system of having like three mothers and two fathers and yeah. <laughs> my sisters you know so um it, it, it wasn't really a matter it was very it was a very nice calm you know childhood there wasn't much sibling any you know drama or rivalry or anything between us I was the baby and I was I was spoiled rotten so okay and good. I was going to say that actually because there's big gaps I'm one of five girls and there's big gaps between all of us Right. Um, and actually, in 18 years between me and my younger sister. Okay. And um, my mum, we were very independent, the two oldest. And when my younger sister first came to move with me, many moons later, she moved in with me. And we'd never lived together. I was right. like, why can't she do anything? Why can't she do anything? <laughs> And my mum was like, I think I reared you guys to leave the house and I reared them to stay with me. To stay, yeah. <laughs> Did you feel that as that youngest? Well, definitely. I mean, if you were to ask my husband, Dino, he, he often says to me, I'm going to speak to your mother about why you can't do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of, we do get away with murder being the babies, definitely. <laughs> oh, bless. So you felt that. And, and as a sort of a youngster, as, as a young age, did you enjoy school? Did yeah I did I did I always enjoyed school um I didn't ha I don't have a lot of friends and I you know never had I was never kind of comfortable in big groups but I always had 
my own little close knit circle, and I loved school. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. And what what did you sort of go towards? Were you sporty? Were you academic? Did you drama? Um, I was I was a bit of both. Yeah, I did gymnastics as a young child. I did everything, I suppose, as well because you're the youngest, and plus as well at that stage, my parents were older, so they had a bit of money I suppose so I was sent to everything I was sent to gymnastics and flute lessons and piano lessons and speech and drama and every, you know I was on the road the whole time and I suppose as well because maybe, maybe I don't know this is just on to me now maybe because I was the youngest and there was nobody to play with at home because the older ones were too cool for me I was kind of sent out on on everything you know and so yeah I, I did I did yeah I was I mean I'm not sporty but I yeah I did a bit of everything yeah yeah definitely. did anything kind of stick with you did did anything stick with you like do you you know did you take it through to as you got older well I suppose art in one way in that I went on then to millinery that was really how I started my career let's call it um so I would have been arty you know in the I mean, yeah, <laughs> art, art classes, I suppose, that kind of thing would have, would have, I would have brought through with me, yeah. Because I think for a lot of creative... I still cartwheel sometimes. I know you do. Yeah, I do do cartwheels in the garden sometimes. I haven't done one down in a while. I still tap dance in my kitchen sometimes too. That stuck yeah. with me. That stuck with me. But um, <laughs> I think as, as, as you get older... And you're sort of when you get into that sort of teenage part, like, did you did you mm-hmm. have an inkling of what you wanted to do, or were you like everybody else and just like, oh, no, okay. I no, I hadn't a clue. I went to college after school. I went to UCD and did a degree in English and French, thinking that I would do the H dip afterwards and become an English teacher. Okay, that was what the plan was when I was seventeen. Yeah. Um, that didn't that didn't work out that plan. But I went and I did a degree in English and French and. Like I said, you don't, you can't really do much with an arts degree, but teach or, you know, um, but I didn't do the HDIP because while I was work, while I was in college, I got a part time job in a hat shop called the Hat Studio on Clarendon Street. And I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the hats. I fell in love with retail, fell in love with customers, fell in love with the whole thing. Um, so when I finished my arts degree I went on then to do a master's in international marketing because I knew that I wasn't going to go down the road of teaching so I had to do something businessy kind of I suppose was the thought process but I did that I think that was a two-year thing in DIT in yeah I think it was two years but anyway I was working away in the hat shop and the guy who owned it had a wholesale business as well, selling hats. So he was supplying kind of every boutique in the country. And this was 94, 95. So okay. there was no internet. I know that most people listening now will be saying, sorry, what? What are you talking about? But like there was, I mean, there was, like we had internet in college, but the internet wasn't really part of business. So he was like the only wholesaler of hats in the country. And everybody who sold hats in Ireland bought them from him. You know, um, it was a totally different way of doing, of doing business. Um, and he was traveling a lot. He was over and back to Thailand and stuff and he was traveling a lot. So he asked me one summer, would I run the business for him for a summer? That, I suppose, must have been summer 94, 95, maybe uh, 94. And I said, yeah, I would, you know, why not? And then when I finished my master's, he said to me, look, if you, if you, you know, if I, because all my friends were going into big high powered jobs with, you know, Nike and Mars and all these huge companies, but he asked me, would I stay and run it for a couple of years for him while he went off and, you know, had a great time. Like, so I said, I said, yeah, I would. Um, and it was a very small business. Like it was only me in the wholesale and then yeah. I was in the shop. Um, and it came about that I was supposed to end up buying that business, but between the jigs and the reels, that didn't work out. But he was he was closing and I said, well, why don't I open my own hat shop? Um, so I did. I found a lovely little unit on Lower Stephen Street in Dublin because where he was was just too expensive. The lease yeah. and the was mad money. But literally around the corner, there was a place half the size for quarter the rent so I opened there 
I was 26. Nobody in my family had ever opened a business before. My parents thought I was absolutely bonkers and um, had like lost my mind. What was she doing? But like everything I'd ever done, they were extremely supportive and encouraging. And I promised my father that if it didn't work, I'd said to him, give me five years. And if I can't make it work in five years, I'll go and get a job. Because my parents were civil servants. My father was a guard. My mum was, te- was a teacher. Um, so they had never had this business person. <laughs> you know, this was all new. Like, um, So they were, they were worried. Like, But I said, give me five years. And if it doesn't work out, I'll, I'll go and I'll get a proper job then, I promise. But no, that, that, was, <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> um, so... It just, I don't know. I can't remember what the question was now, Shan. I've gone off. No, absolutely. I, I'm going to change it completely. But like, so what goes through your mind? Like, it's very difficult for people to understand what it is like opening your first business if they have no idea, which your parents didn't, but they want to support yeah. you. But yeah. More importantly, like you'd run a business for somebody else. So how does yeah. that feel leaping from like having the responsibility for somebody else's money but now yeah. have them the responsibility for yours and potentially staff. Yeah. Um, I suppose I was young, so I didn't really, like, I suppose if, if, if I was doing it now, it would have been more scary. Yeah. I was young and I didn't really think about those things. Plus I had led a very charmed kind of life, you know, nothing yeah. had ever wrong for me so I didn't really entertain the notion that it wouldn't work you know I just kind of said sure if it doesn't work it'll be grand anyway you know be grand is kind of the motto of my life so I just I just kind of went for it like um but yeah it was but I had gotten an excellent grounding in running it for him for those years before you know so I I I knew everything like that and um wage like I was doing the way doing the bat I was doing all that um and then when I opened the shop he had closed the wholesale like I said he he was traveling and a few of the customers because again I having the contacts then I knew all his accounts so a couple of his customers came to me and said look when you're buying if you want to buy extra I'll buy some from you you know because because again this this was 1990 when when did I open the shop 2001 I opened Mad Hatter um and again like again there was internet but there was businesses didn't really have like websites with online catalogs that you could buy from you know so I mean most of the suppliers of hats were in London were in Luton um and you didn't really fly. Like, I mean, I did because that was my business. But if you owned a boutique in Donegal or in Galway, you yes. weren't really trying to loot and to buy hats. Like, you weren't, you know, you needed them there in Dublin, somewhere you could get in your car and drive to and collect them. Yeah. Like, or have. So the, a, a few customers basically said to me, listen, if you want to start selling to us, we'll buy. So I started buying extra and started wholesaling. And then I kind of self taught myself millinery in that I would t- so stock that wasn't selling for me I would kind of say well I wonder why that's not selling so I'd take off the big bow and I'd put on a little thing and I'd do something else with the bow and I'd put the bow on a comb and add a feather to it and blah blah, blah. so then I went on a few millinery courses and got I mean I, I don't think there's any real proper millinery qualification there right. of course you know but um went on a few courses and yeah business was flying it was flying it was Celtic Tiger time it was 2001 it kicked off it was massive the races were massive Kate was just coming into William's life and she was wearing hats with the younger crowd were starting to wear hats it wasn't just you know the mammy of the bride it was people it was young girls in their 20s going to the races and they wanted hats and stuff so it was it was booming we were flying like absolutely flying and, so, and that's business and you're booming and you're busy and you're 26 yeah. and, and it's an amazing time in Ireland. What about yeah. you? What about you? What about your life? What about me? Well, at that time I had just met, I had met Dino, my husband, <laughs> fallen in love. I was having a great time. <laughs> I don't know. It was, I was busy. Uh, we met in Cafe on Seine on Dawson Street. Okay. 
I probably was in there because I, I arrived here in 2000 and I know your shop because a lot of my friends, are friends of mine run a race course. As soon as you said Matt, I was like, oh my God, was she Matt Hatter? Yeah. I didn't realise. It was me, Matt Hatter and Laura Stevens too. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I, I had a yeah, unit yeah. at the well from 2003, I think that was my first year in the car. So and that stayed for years as well. So, yeah. So you met you met one night in Cafe Insane across yeah. that long bar. Across the long bar. I was only 20 years of age. He was 29. He was a foreigner. He was very exotic and gorgeous. So I fell head over heels and <laughs> that was that was the end of that. And what did he do but at the time? Broken up from uh from my childhood sweetheart. I had just broken up from a five-year. I had been with someone from when I was 15 to and I was literally broken up within two weeks and I was heartbroken and blah, blah, blah. And this is my first night out. But I had, here I am, five-year five relationship, two weeks I was devastated for. And then I picked myself up <laughs> two weeks later <laughs> and I was heading out like on the town in my own mind. I was saying, this is it now. I'm going to hit Dublin. Like, you know, this is me. I'm 20. I'm single. I am ready for this town. And the, my very first night out, I met Dino. And I knew as soon as I met him that I wasn't going to have any fun nights out on the town looking for looking for fun. That uh, I knew Isn't that. I love that story. And um, how, so he, he was 29, you were 20. What was he doing in Dublin at the time? He was the doorman in um, in a nightclub. Okay. Yeah, he was the doorman. And uh, I was going to that nightclub that night and it was his night off. And my sister had said to me, go into Cafe on Sen and you'll get a free pass. Yes. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I was in Cafe on Sen one just standing there waiting for somebody to approach me with this free pass <laughs> and instead the head doorman approached me <laughs> and so I got I got my free pass for life then I never had to pay into nightclub ever in my life after that so yeah amazing so I I, I think now you know I was watching actually something yesterday about people's energy levels you know coming out of this last year and whatever but I feel like that in my age when I think of being 26 uh -huh. and you know 2001 um, and how much energy, you know, I would go to work and I'd work so hard all day yeah. and I'd be in cafe and saying to get my free pass <laughs> and then I'd be in the club and then I'd be back into work at half six in the morning. I know. Like, how I do know. we do it? I have no idea. Youth's wasted on the young. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really. really is. I could use it much more wisely now, Absolutely. definitely. So, so for you, as you taught yourself, and then you went and did the millinery um, courses, and you know, obviously the whole. So, where did it go from then for you? Well, from then is um, two thousand. You know, all the way up to two thousand six, it was it was fantastic. It was booming, and I had really good. Like again, I was the only wholesaler, and there was only kind of maybe four or five milliners in Ireland at that time. You know, so like my address book for Mad Hatter, people had travelled to me from all over the country to get a hat in Mad Hatter, like all over the country. Um, but that started changing then as the internet <laughs> came. <laughs> the internet. I sound so old talking about pre-internet days. But um, that started changing with the recession. So 2007, I first started noticing, hmm, hmm, things are, hmm, things are slowing down. And 2008, it's li literally... The bottom fell out of my business in 2008. Um, what happened really, I think, was, which is a great thing, you know, as well, like because so, every recession has opportunity for other people, but other businesses suffer, you know. Um, and what happened in 2008 and nine is that every artistic girl who now had very little job prospects became a milliner. Yeah. Literally, there were milliners in every single town I mean there didn't it didn't have to be a town there was milliners up country lanes you know everybody seemed to become a milliner and therefore the people weren't traveling then to me to Mad Hatter to get their hats plus the boutiques that I was selling to so the, the boutiques that I was told selling into they were struggling to sell hats because now there was there was five girls in their town and you know 
Sarah had gone to school with Lucy. So we have to support Lucy's new business and buy a hat from Lucy and, you know, whatever. So it really, 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 really slowed down, like very dramatically, very quickly in that year. And then I had other, it, it was just a bad year anyway. I got Bell's palsy. My father died. Life just really turned on its head for me 2008 and nine. And in 2010, I was in a situation where I really only kind of had five proper big customers left um, in terms of the wholesale. And Matt Hatter had really, really slowed down. Um, but my wholesale was keeping us going. And I only really had five big, decent accounts left. All my smaller customers had, you know, just given up selling hats. Yeah. Um, and one of them was, one of the ones I had left was Vanity Fair in Newbridge. And they told me that they were selling, that they were going to sell up and go. And I said, oh my God, if they go. And at that time as well, McElhenney's and that boy was struggling and things were starting to go very badly wrong there. And I said, oh my God, if I leave, if I lose these two accounts, that's it. I have no business life. And some notion I just said to Dina one night in the May of 2010, I said, I wonder, could we buy Vanity Fair? And he said, <laughs> how like, how could we buy Vanity Fair? And I said, I don't know. I wonder, could we? So I spoke to the girls because, again, I had a good relationship with them. And I spoke to the girls and they said, no, actually, we, you know, we're nearly at negotiations with another company and I knew who was supposed to be buying it I knew that they weren't going to continue buying from me they're a business and they would have their own sources and their own you know stuff so um I said all right okay that's fine but then during that summer literally in July I think uh one of the girls rang me and said listen that has fallen through we are going to close down but if you're interested you could, you know, we could come to some arrangements. So Dino had gone home to Croatia and I rang him and I said, I, th- I think we're going to buy Vanity Fair. And he was like, what? And I said, yeah, I, th- I think we are. So Deirdre was great. She brought me on, because again, in fashion, it's it's so, you're buying so far in advance and stuff. And they hadn't bought for the next season yes. because, you know, that kind of thing. So it was all a big rush. Like really, it was a big rush. And but she brought me buying and she introduced me to all the suppliers and stuff. And she was a phenomenal support. Um, this is one of the girls who had owned it. Yeah. In August, we bought in August 2010, we bought it. And I know, like, and you mentioned briefly your 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 dad passed away in 2009 and I, I, I was in my first business and, and was hit by the recession very similar to yourself and it was a hard time and I lost my dad and really um and I peddled on and mm. I and like listening to you it's like listening to myself I was like I'm busy I move on I do this I do that did you have time to I know myself I didn't feel like I had time to to let go of him at the time and I probably did it a lot later I did and I didn't I bought Fancy Fair in August 2010 he had died in November 2008 okay. and it hit me I really stopped I didn't come back to life until kind of summer 2010 I literally zoned out for that year and a half I was gone I was absolutely I was talking only last night, actually, to my mother about this. I don't really, I mean, I know it's the death of the parents. So of course, it's going to hit your heart. It's, it's devastating. But at the same time, looking back, like everybody, if you're guaranteed one thing in life is that your parents are going to die, you know, yeah. before, hopefully. I mean, that's that's the natural way of things. But it it hit me very, very hard. Um. And I don't know, <laughs> I guess it sounds silly to say I don't know why, but I don't really know why. Like I I went, I was very, 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 very low after he died. But I suppose it was also that my business was also dying. Um, I was obviously under pressure and stress because I had gotten the Bell's palsy six months before he died. He had been sick, but I, he hadn't, he hadn't been sick. He had been sick in that he had an aneurysm and they operated on the aneurysm and put in a stent. So he was fine, you know, and, but then it turned out a year later that he wasn't fine, that the stent 
didn't work. It basically wasn't a long enough stent. So the aneurysm was continuing to fill. So he was going for another operation to have a proper longer stent put in, <clears throat> but they were going to have to do it abdominally this time rather than through the groin. They had done the last one up to the groin, but this was going to be a big operation. But at no point did we know that there was a risk to his life. Like um, he just went in for an operation, you know, he was just having an operation, you have a stent and he died. He bled to death basically. So that was the biggest shock of yeah. my life. Like, sorry, I don't know why. I don't know, maybe because I was talking about it last night to my mom only, um, but that was the biggest shock of my life. And I just completely shut down. I had no idea that, because like I said earlier on, I had lived a very charmed life, you yes. know. And this was my first experience of actual physical pain um, and loss and grief and stuff. And it was devastating. It was horrendous. Time. What happened in, in your family? Did you find you came all close together? Did someone take charge? No, funny, because we were such a close, and we are now again, we are such a close family. But it was funny. It was like we all, like I hear about other families of grief and how you pull together and you really help each other through. That didn't really happen with us. We all kind of scattered to the four corners of the room. You know, we all kind of just, yeah. I look looking back now, I think that we were all in so much shock because it was a shock. It was yeah. like a death. Although he was he died in a hospital, we had no idea that there was any chance that he could possibly die. I mean, you're going in for an operation. You, I just never knew. I never knew that people could die at an operation. I really didn't. You just don't think like that, though, yeah. do you? No. That could happen. Like, I had every faith that I was going to see him that night and you know he'd be grand like we'd mind him and he'd be, he'd be better and he'd yeah. be fine oh. um so I think we were all in so much shock and in so much pain because he was very very special person and I know everybody feels like that about their father but I swear to god my father was the best father <laughs> he really yeah. was like he, he really was um he was incredibly special person um very unique man uh very very special and my mother he was like, he, he just adored her, you know, and she, she was lost. We were all lost, but we didn't really pull together in that. We, we very much stayed apart for those next few years. Um, and even still, to be honest, I don't really like the, the, the big family gatherings even still um, because he's not there. And yeah. this is, 12, 13 years later and I don't like it when we're all together I like meeting them all individually you know but when we're all together there's something very sad I think about about his absence you know yeah I get it I I mean I I can't wait you know I I do like getting together with my family but actually we weren't close before my father died and okay. he gave that's what he gave us really yeah. So you pull together a penny. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it's kind of yeah. the flip of that. But, but yeah. And I, yeah, like I, it baffles me why that kind of happened to us. And I don't, I've never even spoken to the others about it. I don't even know if they feel the same. But the way I've kind of, you know, gathered it in my head is that we weren't able for each other's pain. We were just about able for, I was just about able for my own pain. I wasn't able to witness their pain too. You know, and I mean, look, I'm, I'm sounding like we didn't see each other for years. That's not true. <laughs> did, you know, we were together a lot. Like, but it, in a, it was different. It was different. It was yeah. different. Definitely, yeah, it changed things. And I think as well for every sibling, it's hard to watch your mum. You know, yes. She, she's still your mum and she yeah. still wants to be your mum and look after you. But you yeah. know how much you've got to give her. Yeah, yeah, and she's hurting so bad. Yeah, it's it's very, it's yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. But you came through it. Yes. And you bought the Vanity Fair. <laughs> I bought Vanity Fair. When I woke up then, kind of summer 2010, I said, oh, okay, let's get back. No, like I said, my business was was really, really struggling at that time. <clears throat> I knew it was going to go under if I lost. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, if I lost the Vanity Fair account and... So I just decided what better way to keep the Vanity Fair account than to own it myself. 
so yeah so I ended up buying Vandiver which is massive I don't know if people know Vandiver but it was a huge shop in Newbridge specializing in occasion wear and um so yeah I had that for 10 years until last August and what um are you was and I know we've spoken before um you know if, if you look at the like I, I've started watching obviously Vanity Fair before last mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. Um, and was like just saw this amazing shop community mm-hmm. stage yeah entertainment <laughs> center creative <laughs> center like it had everything in it yeah yeah it was an amazing space absolutely amazing space magical space like beautiful space like actually a beautiful shop you know the actual space was beautiful space beautiful energy in it and um I had fabulous women they were unbelievable um and and yeah it was it was a magical space that had a little bit of everything in it yeah it was crazy it was great we spoke about the first shop like and then what happened with the internet obviously when you take Vanity Fair Facebook is is the norm by then I'd say Sorry, Sorry, babes. I was saying we spoke earlier about um, sort of the internet and how that changed things. And obviously when you took Vanity Fair, Facebook would have been well up and running by then. Yeah. Instagram had not arrived yet, probably. No, not really. No, 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 not really. It's my first kind of double. I mean, yeah, we'd had the Facebook page and you'd post pictures and that'll be it. And you'd like and share and all that. You do competitions and, you know, um, but there was never really any proper interaction. Snapchat was my first uh, journey into the social media world as we know it now. Um, and again, it was at that time because Vanity Fair, like I said, was a huge business. And to be honest, looking back on it, we were kind of always struggling in it. Like it was it was kind of, I suppose, too big for us, really, looking back on it, even though it was the best 10 years of my life and I don't regret a second of it. But it was a constant, you know, a constant battle, like to 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 make the, the monthly demands financially, you know. Yeah. I had huge staff, had huge rent, it was huge rates, huge, everything was huge. And my stock levels were huge. Everything was huge. Um, and we don't have any money. Like, you know, we're not, like, a, yeah. you know, civil, civil serving parents. I don't come, for, you know. Um, but it was absolutely beautiful. But but it, it was a struggle. But I noticed that, um, again, in 2000, and I suppose it would have been, 17 16 17-ish that there was this whole social media thing starting and you know uh fashion halls were a thing and there was people like bloggers who were talking about fashion and I was like sorry who are these people what do they know about fashion what's going on here like um so I started following a few of them and I was kind of going oh okay and I got on to Snapchat and I was very lucky, actually, because the, a girl, Denise, who owns Pello, across the road from me in Newbridge, she was very active on Snapchat. And I started following her and I didn't know her. I mean, I knew her as the hairdresser yes. across the road, but I didn't properly know her until I started following her on Snapchat first. And I looked at what she was doing with her business and how she was doing it. So I was following other businesses and they were doing kind of the same thing that they were doing on Facebook but doing it on Snapchat in a slightly different way. But it was just really about stock and putting up pictures and telling you the sizes and the price and blah, blah, blah. Whereas she was letting people into her life and she was letting people into the background of her business and she was talking about her business. And I was saying, that's so interesting. Like, so I said, I wonder, could I do that with Vanity Fair? Like, could I, you know, let people in a little bit? Because again, Vanity Fair had a reputation of being an expensive shop, you know, and an older person's shop, a mother of the bride specialist, you know. So I needed a new, younger customer coming through my doors if I was going to maintain it. So what better way to do that than on social media to let people know you know, that this, that there is a younger vibe going on here. It's not just about, you know, and, and the price point isn't yes all, all of it through the, you know, there was a lot of expensive brands in there, but there was a lot of very affordable brands in there too. And yeah, Snapchat 
took took over and I launched myself into that. I got shout outs from Denise and blah, blah, blah and all that. So built a little following there. And then when was it that we all moved to Instagram? We all just abandoned Snapchat and moved to Instagram. And Bye. Yeah. Bye, Snapchat. Thanks. <laughs> We're moving now and just moved over to Instagram stories. I, I still to the day don't know how that happened so quickly. It was bizarre. And I was one of the last to leave Snapchat, to be honest. Like, I was fighting it. I was saying, no, absolutely not. Uh, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Because, again, I thought it was a place where you'd have to go and be absolutely perfect on Instagram. You know, Snapchat was kind of like the ugly sister where you could be yourself, you know. And Instagram, you had to be princess. Like, and I just, yeah. I was, I'm not good at being a princess, so I can only be myself. I think that's maybe why I went. I was like, like, all, all the the ugly sisters are going together, and I'm going to go with them because we need to disrupt no, this this beautiful looking aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> we need to to disrupt it and make it normal and human, yeah. And real. Um, but yeah, I I. I I loved. I still love Snapchat. I still dive in there every now and then to watch other people. No, so do, so do I still go on and give out about things? Because there's certain things that you can't say on Instagram. Yes. <laughs> there's certain things that you can't go out and give out about. So sometimes, if I'm really, if something's really annoyed me, I'll go on Snapchat and say, "Oh my god," because it's, that's really like on Snapchat. And and there are still people there watching. It's gas. Oh, absolutely. But I think I think everything that you talked about wanting to achieve there, you certainly achieved. Like for me, it was, you know, people are look, we're, we're naturally nosy, but I love the fact that it was creative. It was entertaining. It was mm-hmm. I could see what was going on. I understood you better. I understood you know, what you were going through. And, and that really came to fruition, I suppose, when last year hit um, yeah. and you had to close. Yeah. Yeah. That was. The second most devastating thing that's yeah. that really was like it was my daddy all over again. Like it was, it was it like I described it at the time as grief, and it really was the same kind of feeling of grief. It really was like amazing. Um, and, but it was it was horrendous. But there was no way. And I knew very early on, Chan, that there was no way. I knew that unless this finished very quickly, you know, um, that I wasn't going to be able to maintain that shop through it. You know, it had to end, like it had to finish and let me let me rebuild. I mean, in 2018, we had to close the shop for four days because of the snow. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the snow kind of lasted maybe 10 days. You know, our business was affected for maybe 10 days. And that killed that year. Yeah. Like that took every bit of profit out of that year. That was a write-off of the year because of those 10 days. And I knew that. So I knew that any longer than two weeks of this is going to be detrimental because my 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 investment was so high. You know, my my yeah. my bills were so high. My stock was so valuable. There was so much stock, and I needed to. I needed a constant churn of income coming through the door, and it wasn't coming. And I knew that it was going to stop very fast. The wheel was going to stop turning very fast. You know, but. We reopened in July and I, I knew I knew a few days after we reopened that it wasn't, you know, it had to get back to normal and it wasn't going to get back to normal. And then the Kildare lockdown happened in August and nobody could come in or out of Kildare. And I said, this is unbelievable. And I knew that we were facing into the winter that we faced into. I knew that that was ahead. Like, um, I just knew it. And we just had to liquidator was just appointed we had to like, like my accountant said to me this you can't you, like you're insolvent you can't pay your debt you know you yeah. can't there's and no that's that like the toughest oh it was yeah it was terrible it was terrible because it was such a special place it was such a special place filled with such special people and I wasn't just giving up a shop I was giving up them you know um and they were so wonderful and their concern was me and not their job. Like they were worried about me. They were like my mammies, you know, they yeah. were, I don't know. They were like sisters and mammies to me really. And they, they were so special. They were really so special. So I was giving up that as well and everything. It just felt, it just felt like my world was ending again. Like it's, I just I can't believe this is happening again. 
to my business. Like, what, what, what am I, what's happening here? It was unbelievable. It was un- unreal. It, but it, I think people, again, unless you have had a business and gone through it and felt it, because it's all about how it, how it feels. Yeah, yeah. You can empathise, but you can't, you'll never understand it, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. So it's such a, it, it's a loss. You know, I always talk to people about, you know, giving, giving, getting help from somebody for your business is like giving somebody one of their limbs, like a baby. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. Because you, you nurture your business. Yeah. You grow and you give it every, everything and you're all. Yeah. So, yeah. And at the time, like, you know, for someone on the outside looking in, I was like, my God, this, this is such a brave, brave, brave thing to do. You know, other people go, no, oh, she's lost something. I'm like, no, she's actually, like she's giving it everything. She's not losing anything because it's such a like it's such an amazing achievement to be able to have made that decision. I know some of it was out of your hands, yeah, without a doubt. But like I took huge strength from watching you go through that. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I think it's important when to know when to let go. Yeah. as well you know because I had kind of made that mistake with Mad Hatter like Mad Hatter like I said really started dying in 2008 but I didn't actually close it until I think it was 2014 and it was bleeding money but much smaller yeah. money you know my rent was tight I mean it was the tiniest shop you've ever seen in your life Shan. it was so small it was so cute it was actually it was 15 square meters it was actually the size of my downstairs fitting room area in Vanity Fair so that was the size of my hat shop it was tiny so the rent was tiny and the stock the cost of stock was tiny because I was making the stock that was going into so it was costing very little but my time you know it was yes. my time putting the value on the project right um so I was able to 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 subsidize that and keep it going for, for years after it should have closed. I should have closed it in 2009, you know, yeah. um, but I didn't. Um, but I knew that that wasn't going, I wasn't going to be able to drip feed Vanity Fair. You know, I, I didn't have the, the capacity to, to do that financially. I wasn't going to be able to keep it afloat the way I had done for, for Mad Hatter. Um, so I think, but, but having, having learned the lesson of Mad Hatter, and having realized the money that we lost in those few years, trying to keep it alive, like I said, it wasn't big, yeah. wasn't big money, but I knew that we weren't, I, like, it, I, I knew that it was time to let go, you know, and I think it's very important to know that and to realize that that's just life. Things come to an end, you know, and I mean, this was a very unnatural end in terms of COVID, but this was the end and I had to recognize that and I think there's so much pressure on business people to I think I've spoken about this before maybe on a live or something with somebody but there's so much pressure on business people to keep going you know and stay strong and keep mm. going and plow on and work through it and you know and sometimes you just have to say you know what that's too hard I'm, I'm not going to be able for that yeah. that's going to take up too much of my whatever it is, my time, my energy, my love, my heart, my soul, my money, my, I can't do that, you know, and there's, I remember a lot of people at the time said to me, and again, all very well-meaning, you know, but said to me, and there's no shame in it, Nessa, don't worry, there's no shame in having to close, and I remember thinking to myself, and I mean, again, like I said, these were lovely people who were coming from a very good place, you know, but I remember thinking to myself, of course, there's no shame in this. I don't feel any shame in this. And I, I don't like, and I didn't. I felt huge loss and heartache, but shame was never an emotion that I associated with having to close business. People just have to close their business. You have to do what's right, you know? But it's a life lesson. And it's funny because, like you say, good intent, wrong word, probably. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I listen. It's, it's the same thing. Life lesson. You know, I tried for a decade for a family, and people say, "Are you ready to give up?" Well, I'm not giving up. <laughs> yeah, I've just accepted the reality. I've accepted that it's at a finish. Yeah, yeah. It's, and you have to, yeah. yeah, and like you, you did everything in your power. Yeah. So it's, not, it's not letting you know. It, it's actually letting go, releasing, and giving you the freedom. Yes. To move yeah. On. 
to move on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I think that, and a lot of people spoke to me afterwards because a lot of small businesses at that time were following me. I don't know if they're still watching me, but at that time through that story, that there was a lot of uh, business people messaging me through those months. Um, and everybody during COVID was in a dilemma as to what to do, you know? Yeah. And thankfully, a lot of businesses have survived it and are reopening now next week. And it's, you know, hopefully, hopefully this is the end of it. Yeah. Um, be able to stay open. Um, but a lot of people did close. A lot of people did yeah. say, I can't do this. And that's okay. You just move on to something else. You know, the, the time is right or wrong for different things in your life. And it's important to, to recognize that. And I was very lucky that I had never been brought up with any kind of, I suppose, too high expectations. You know, it was always just, listen, you'll give it, you'll do your best. Do your best. And fine and if it doesn't work out you'll move on you'll do something else like I said to my father all those years ago if it doesn't work out I'll just go and get a job you know yes. so there's there's no big problem you know I, I've been very lucky throughout my life that I never worry what other people think I don't worry what other people think you know and I think that's a huge there's a huge freedom in that because I see a lot of people who get so caught up in Oh, what's such such going to think, and what are people going to say? And what I don't care what people are going to say. I really don't. Like I don't. And I'm sure a lot of people had a lot of things to say about Vanity Fair closing. And I'm sure there was a lot of people who thought, well, why can't she? You know, why can't she keep going? Such a such a shop. They're they're still open. Why couldn't Essa? Listen, <laughs> do you want me to tell you why? Like seriously, you don't know people's story. And but I I'm lucky that I never. I don't really care about people think or say who yeah. don't know the story you know if my friends and family were said they're the only people I care about the people who actually know the story because nobody else on the outside knows the real story you know I think people can overthink it as well and most of the time actually people yeah. don't care what you're doing yeah. they don't they don't yeah. and then yeah. Dr. Phil, I, I'm admitting to watching Dr. Phil now, but he always says, what other people think of you is none of your business. And I love that phrase. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's one of my phrases as well. It's none yeah. of my business what other people think about me. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> like, nothing to do with me. So so where did the, I suppose, when the dust settled and, and you gave yourself time, like, mm-hmm. w- was there a question about what you would do next? There was, well, yeah, like I did really, th- I think people kind of presumed that, oh, sure, she, she knew she'd just start up online and it'd be grand. Um, no, I did genuinely reconsider everything. Like I literally thought about going to get a job in Super Value or yeah. Tesco. Or, like I, because I have been self-employed since I was 26. I'm 46 now. I've never nobody's ever handed me any money for doing work you know I've never, I've never gotten holiday pay or bank holiday pay entitlements or you know I've never had like that and part of me really did wonder what it would be like to have a job you know um and I thought about going down the road of working in the industry but for somebody else but I don't think I could do that okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I then I went down the road of should I kind of not become a business mentor, but should I, you know, work with other boutiques and help them some way with social media and stuff? But no, I'm too much of a control freak. I'd want to, I'd want to just take over. Like, <laughs> I'd want to just say, no, you're doing that wrong. Here, give it to me. I'll do it. <laughs> but. But again, like we had start, we had never sold online in Vanity Fair until COVID. And we started selling online in June and with Vanity Fair. And it, it had gone very, very well. Um, but again, the price of the product, it was never going to be enough to, to, yeah. pay, the, to pay the bills that were there. But um, it had gone very well. So that was in the back of my mind, definitely, that there was an online business in cheaper, more affordable, casual clothing and just see how that goes so we just plus I missed it you know I missed I missed it like I missed the clothes I love clothes I missed the clothes I missed the customer I missed getting pictures from the customer after they bought something of themselves and their new this and that I missed all that so 
Yeah, so we started up online with the try-on in October and it is flying. It's flying. It's great. It's great. But, but well, And I've said this before on other podcasts because I've referred to your business a few times because I, I love what you did because you didn't just open a shop online and call it. No. You took what worked so well yeah. at Vanity Fair and you went, yeah. there's a business in that. So let's do what other it, people are doing, but with a beautiful twist. Exactly. And that was as well, because like, at the time for Vanity Fair closed, I mean, it took me days to get through those messages that came in from people. But, and I I couldn't see through the tears, like I couldn't read half them through the tears. It took me so long to, to get through them. Um, but the overwhelming feeling from people who had been in Vanity Fair and had had the Vanity Fair experience was that it was an experience that left them with a feeling. You know, it was it wasn't really about the clothes that they bought. It was the feelings that they had. It was the feelings that they left with, not really the clothes that they left with, that they remembered, you know, or that was special to them. Um, so I wanted that. That's, that's what I'm addicted to. I'm addicted to making people feel Good. like that, you know. Um, so I don't really care what I'm selling them. I can be selling them makeup brushes. I can be selling them pens as long as they feel that they have been seen, that they have been recognised, that they have been valued and celebrated with their new pen or makeup brush yeah. or whatever it is, the product is irrelevant. Um, that's that's what I love. That's what I love. But I, And I think you do it very, very well. Um, but again, it's back to you can see your passion for it and your mm. passion goes... Mm. It, you know, we were all worried about going online, social media, using Zoom, phones, but some people come through the screens and you do. Mm, thank you. Yeah. But, you, you, you know, you do. And um, and not everybody can do that. That is a gift. Mm. Um, but again, I think it's because I have so much support as well. I have a lot of, like, the people who, who I call them followers, but the people who interact with me daily on my phone. Um, <laughs> They're very supportive. Like I, I, I feel like I, like I know those people. I really do. Like yeah. I probably haven't met half of them, but or <laughs> I probably only met one percent of them. But I feel like I know them. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you go in a live and you see the names popping up, and you're like, oh, there's Anne. Oh, hi, hi, yeah. Lisa. Hi, this. Hi. You know, I feel like they're my little gang of pals. So I have to, I have to do it with them, you know. I, I said this to you before. They are your pals. They are your gang. These people yeah. need to watch you wrap up clothes, for God's sake. Like, you know what I mean? I, I'm always fascinated by that. I'm like, is she still up or is she still up? <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you, are you nocturnal? <laughs> I am definitely, yeah. Definitely, definitely, definitely. De always was. Even in, Again, even in college, I would sit in the library all day coming up to exams I'd sit out and used to do library and I would no more be in the library I'd have my little desk and my books would be open but I'd be down in the canteen like I can't do stuff during the day I just don't okay. really focus during the day I only kick in at about 10 o'clock at night and it was the same with study I would my you know my parents would go out to watch the nine o'clock news in the sitting room and I would take over the kitchen table and I'd be there until two or three o'clock in the morning and then I'd get up at eight and go and do my exam like I, I just there my air ten to two in that night time. Yeah. There my air. when I see people getting up for the five a.m. biz club or all these different things early in the morning and you know start to be. I, I'm like absolutely not. Can't function. Can't. Don't yeah. kick until the evening time. Yeah, I waste most of my days. Like I literally waste most of my days just arsing around the place doing nothing. Like, and I and then at ten o'clock I say, oh. Jesus, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this, I have to do that, 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 and I start then. It's amazing though. It's I, 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 I get fascinated watching it because I'm, I, I am at my best first thing in the morning. I'm okay at night as well. I, I worked in pubs for years, so I was always used to that split, split yeah. shift situation. So I was right, right. in the mornings yeah. and the evenings, and then in the afternoon I, I would take a break. But um, I want to ask you quickly because you had mentioned it a couple of times um, about your bowel palsy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how did that affect you? And is it something that you have for a long time or do you get through? Like, how does I know about like I would think it, about it, is a relaxation of the muscles in the 
in, in part, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It, it affects different people in different ways for, in terms of severity or how long it lasts and stuff. Mine was quite a bad case. I had felt um, like it, it was a very bad case. I remember my sister tells the story of going to see me in Nays Hospital. And I was on a trolley in A&E in Nays Hospital and she was walking down the corridor and she could see a doctor sticking a sheet of paper, the corner of a piece of paper into my eyeball. And I wasn't blinking or feeling it or reacting or my eye wasn't, you know, you'd imagine when coming at you that the first thing you'd be doing would be blinking. Like my the left side of my face was completely and utterly frozen, gone. No movement, no feeling, no movement at all. Um, and it happened, I suppose, quickly, but it happened. I, I was working in Mad Hatter. It was a Saturday and I was working in Mad Hatter and... I went across the road for a bowl of soup and it tasted very strange. And I felt kind of for the rest of the day, like I had burnt my tongue, but I knew I hadn't. I had a very strange feeling in my tongue and a very strange taste in my mouth and nothing tasted right. I drink Pepsi all day long Mm -hmm. and it tasted like Pepsi Max. Like it, it tasted wrong, you know? Um, and we always go out for dinner every Saturday night, apart from, pre-COVID times, every Saturday night is non-negotiable. That's our date night. That's our time. And it doesn't matter what is happening. We are going out for dinner on Saturday night. And I came home from work and I said, I can't go out tonight. I'm, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just feel very strange. And he said, okay, it's grand. You know, are you sick? Or I said, no, I'm not sick. I don't know. What are you? I just feel really tired. And I'm never tired. Like, I, I don't know the feeling yes. of the it's just not something that I ever am. I'm never tired, really, you know. But I lay down on the couch and I fell asleep. And I woke up a few hours later. And again, like me, fall asleep in the, in the evening time. Like never, you know, not never happens. Yeah. Um, I woke up a few hours later and I went to bed. And when Dino woke up in the morning, I was there with my left. My left eye was wide open, but I was asleep. But my left eye was wide open and he got the fright of his life he didn't know what had happened to me and when he woke me to say oh my god I my, my he could see then that my whole face was frozen I was talking funny I couldn't speak properly <clears throat> and he thought I'd had a stroke like he nearly yeah. lost his mind because it looks very similar to, to, yeah. to and it was Sunday it was the weekend before Paddy's Day I think Paddy's Day was on the Tuesday so I think it was a bank holiday Monday it was you know um and he brought me somewhere, he brought me to some D-Doc somewhere and they said, I don't know. And then we went off. I, I can't even remember where we yeah. were. We ended up hospital for some reason, even though I live in Luke. Anyway, we ended up in Nate's hospital. And, and they said that, yes, it was Bell's palsy. But that had, um, it, it was quite a severe case and it lasted a long time. Like I had to tape my eye. I couldn't blink for about three, four months. I had to tape my eye shut at night. Um, and even still, I can still see it in my face, Shan. Like, and, and my mother says that my face is totally different to what it was. And I see it looking back at photographs as well of me pre and now, you know. Yeah. But it took a good year and a half before, let's call it, I was back to normal. I was back to this normal. Yeah. But again, I'm tired. You can still see it. You can still see the droop in my lip on the left side. My my left eye gets kind of wider. You'd imagine if it gets smaller, it doesn't, it gets wider, it gets kind of bigger um, when I'm tired and stuff. But yes, it's, it was. Do they know why you got it? Stress, they say, that's what they say for everything that they can't explain, isn't it? Stress. <laughs> <laughs> but, but obviously it's, so it is something that fixes itself. Some people can get it and be fine three weeks later, you know, and other people, it never goes away. You have to go on steroids for it. And the longer you leave the the treatment before the steroids, the longer lasting the damage can be, you know, like one of my friends, her father got it when he was very young and he never went to anyone about it. And he still kind of has it, you know, you can still kind of see it in his face so the steroids that they give you help so that's how yeah. we got there fast Tino bundled me into the car and whipped me away but I was going to say you the the the, the man uh, looked after you but talking of him like obviously you've been together if my calculations are right 26 years yeah 26 years and yeah married? 
We got married only five years ago last December. We got married on our 20 year anniversary. Amazing. Yeah. And we just got married, just the two of us. We were terrible. We didn't do any any wedding or any fuss. And we went on a fabulous three-week holiday to Thailand. Um, that was our wedding fund. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we got we got married, just the, just the two of us. And I didn't really ever want to get married. I only literally got married because you have to be married for legal tax, yeah. financial, owning a house together, owning a business together, all that kind of nonsense. That was literally, honestly, the only reason we got married. So there was no romance or drama or I never wanted a wedding or anything like that. So um, <clears throat> also a big part of my reasons for not wanting. I think if my father had been alive, I would have had a very small wedding. Okay. But I had no intention of having a wedding without having my father there. Yeah. How did your mum feel? She nearly killed me. (laughs) (laughs) She nearly killed me. But I don't know why, because I had always said, like I had always said to her, one day I'll just arrive in and I'll tell you that I'm married and that'll be the end of it. There'll be no wedding, there'll be no fuss. And she had always said back to me, you're dead right. You're absolutely, that's the way to do it. You're dead right. So then when I did, she was like, you're what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she died but no she's she she got over <clears throat> my, my sister well were raging and my nieces my nieces were absolutely right they're all raging with me but sure that's that's okay they got over it I was gonna say they got over it they got over it yeah. so so now what's what's next for you uh what will you do now as we come out of this this year I'd say that is the big question, Sean. I really don't know. <clears throat> and I was saying to you, you know, recently, like this is the first time in our lives that we have never had a plan, you know? I mean, I don't think I've ever really had a plan, but I've always kind of known the road I've been on. And I don't really know what road I'm on. Like, I don't really know where I'm going now. Am I going to go straight on? Am I going to go right? Am I going to go left? Am I, I don't know if I'm going, just going to keep going around the roundabout. I don't know yeah. what to two yes um I honestly don't know and I my problem I think this is what I was saying to my problem I think is I don't actually know what I want to do that's I think the problem I don't I'm quite happy here like I've 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 had the big business I've done all that I'm quite happy with this I'm got it's not a massive business but it's enough it's keeping a roof over our head and I'm quite happy with that for the moment for the next one I think well I think you have to embrace that because you know I yeah. people say what do you do for a job and I go I don't really have a job I just do yeah I, I don't work this isn't what I do for a living this is just what I do yeah I to get paid for it yeah yeah. Um, yeah and I think that's a nice place to be yeah, and I, I'm very happy here. Like, I like my, I'm lucky that I like my own company, you know. I've never, I've always kind of, always sought out my own company. Um, I think that's why I like nighttime, because my days would always have been so busy. I like nighttime because I'm literally yeah. on my own. Um, so I'm quite happy here, working from home, having my social media interaction with the outside world. I could, I could, at the moment, I feel like I could kind of stay here forever. Yeah. Um, now, am I going to stay here forever? No, probably not. But, um, but at the moment, for the next while, I don't. I'm not rushing back to anything. I'm not going to rush okay. back to to all the bells and whistles. I'm I'm okay here for the moment. I don't think you need to. And I think what you're what you're doing for yourself and what you offer to other people, it's a it's a nice place. And and yeah. when something's nice, I'd stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also enjoying the freedom of not having so much responsibility, you know, like I've, you know, I've done that for 20 years. This is very freeing. Like, I feel like for the first time in my life, after being self-employed for 20 years, I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm actually my own boss. Yes. I'm only my own boss. I'm nobody else's boss. I don't, I'm not responsible for anyone or anything or any anything I literally feel very very free yeah Yeah. I always say that actually you know it doesn't matter how beautiful your staff are how lovely and how much you love working with them the responsibility of of other people's houses and mortgages massive it's it's massive huge it's overwhelming sometimes responsibility of their health and safety was 
oh my God, that was so overwhelming when we reopened last year. I'll never forget it. I couldn't understand how I was expected to ask these people to come out of their homes and come to work, to make money for me. Like I couldn't understand. I couldn't get my head around why these people would do that. and how and how I was then responsible for their health while they were in it was it was overwhelming I don't know I thought about it too much because I I did say that to a few other business people and they were like what (laughs) I was like are you you not over I was I I had a conversation with our girls from the uh, Pilates student and I just all we did was have a meeting and I said we're going back. You don't have, you know, you don't have yeah. to. We will cope if you don't feel. And, and yeah. they said, we don't want to come back yet. And I was like, that's fine then. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of my girls, when we did reopen in July, kind of half came back. Now, a lot of my staff would have been older staff. Yes. Um, so they didn't feel safe to come back last July. And I asked, and to be honest with you, I was praying that they would say that to me. Yes. You know, I didn't want, oh my God, no, anything like that any of them like would just have died um so they didn't come back in july so only kind of half the girls came back but i just thought they were incredible to do that like, yeah incredible. Oh, absolutely but i think this last you know we, we've really learned so much about ourselves about people we've learned mm. so much in the last oh. months it's been of such a benefit i think and if yeah. people haven't learned then they must they must be asleep i don't know <laughs> oh yeah things I've learned this year I couldn't have learned in a lifetime like it's yeah unreal listen talking of learning your predecessors I always show this because people are like is there actually a jar um I'm going to pick a couple of questions from the jar from your predecessors people have been on before so the first one is oh what is your purpose in life deep oh god I hate questions like that I don't really know what my purpose in life is I'm terrible like I'm so terrible I went last year 2020 right I was accepted into going for growth into going for growth program oh yeah yeah and we started in the January and we had our meeting in February and then COVID hit in March so it was a very surreal experience of that program so I can't really give any proper feedback but like that it, it was very much you know about thinking about your purpose and your vision and your goal and your plan I don't really have I don't know I always really struggled with that I don't honestly know what my purpose is I'm going to send you a document and one night when you're by yourself you're going to fill it out because everybody has one but I think we overthink it I think we think sometimes the purpose must be to to I don't know invent something or do something (laughs) and it really can be as simple as to be happy or to make people happy or just mean like well it's just but then I think it's that if I could make women happy in their bodies through clothing that's my purpose that's really what I what I get the most buzz out of that's what I that's what gets me up in the morning like that's what keeps me going is to, to get one more woman send me a message to say oh my god I would never have worn something like this but I put it I bought I took a risk I bought it I put it on me and I feel amazing and I've gotten so many compliments today and thank you so much and well that's my buzz that's my that's where I get my kicks from that's amazing and I'm going to finish it there because that is like the nicest thing I've heard today and uh, <laughs> at some point I'm gonna I'm gonna let you stick some clothes on me because I need a bit of that I need a bit of that but um thank you so much for spending time no problem that was no. amazing and thank you for sharing so much as well no problem thank you